Let's, let's bow in prayer. Listen now to God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now, our Holy Father, we love you and we thank you for your amazing grace to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we of all people know that you are sovereign, that your providence extends right down to a bird falling to the ground. You see what is happening in our nation and across the world. And so we rest in your goodness. We trust in your sovereignty even to work through Israel, a nation that has been fully vaccinated, and we know that you promise you'll not wipe them off the face of the earth. And though we don't know all the long-term implications, we know that you have a plan for Israel. And we rest in that, and may we be alert prophetically in these days, where you are certainly setting the stage for the return of your Son from heaven. Now, we're coming to your word, and with the psalmist, we pray that we might tremble at it that we would revere it, that what we hold in our laps this morning is your very breath put on paper. So help us to pay close attention. Thank you that the Old Testament was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So I pray for your protection over our people in these days. Thank you that for the few who have been in the hospital, as best we know, they are already released. And we pray for the protection of all of our members, especially our little ones, that you would guard them through these days. Now come and help me, my Father, and fill me and anoint me and speak through me, that all who will hear this message today and in the months to follow until Jesus comes, that your church might be built up and the Lord Jesus might be glorified. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want to begin a brand new series on the subject of morality, on moral excellence. If you're here for the first time, we have uh, just completed the book of James, and so we're between books. Typically, if you've been here for some years, you will notice I do a New Testament book, an Old Testament book, New Testament, Old Testament. We're called to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And we have finished James, but we're between books. And before we start our next book, don't ask me what it is. I never reveal it. I like it to be a surprise. But before we get to it, God has put on my heart some issues that I believe He wants me to cover. And some of you have written me and asked me some specific questions. And you can see the subject this morning is avoiding moral failure. I hope to do at least five messages, maybe more, in this series on morality. I hope you know that the devil, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the evil one, the one who energizes the world system, he is working in a humanistic, evolutionistic, self-centered, rationalistic way in which to convince people that anything goes. And so our children are being taught, beginning in the first grade, that we were not created by God, but we evolved from animals. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we evolved from animals that people would live like animals. 
And so starting in the middle school, even in our, our own county, and in some expressions even before that, children are being taught about how to have safe sex. They're taught that homosexuality and transgenderism is normal and should be embraced. These are evils on our culture. God is judging our nation. There's different kinds of judgment in Scripture. There's cataclysmic judgment that would be like Noah's flood or God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's the coming tribulation judgment, a time that is unequaled in the history of the world. And Jesus said, had not those days been cut short, no flesh would have survived. There's eternal judgment in a place called the lake of fire, called hell, Gehenna. But there's also the judgment of God that is being revealed, current day judgment. And Paul describes it in Romans 1, and if you're not familiar with Romans 1, it is a commentary on America. We are seeing the very things that God describes in Romans chapter 1. There is a popular website. They claim now to have 70 million users. It's up 20 million since the last time I checked. It's called Ashley Madison. And the slogan is, life is short, have an affair. But they lie in their advertising. The reality that life is short is a misnomer because God created you for an eternity. Eternity is forever. And you will someday meet the living God and you will spend an eternity either with Him in a place that He wants you to go. It's called heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem or you will spend an eternity in hell. But sadly, the people in America have become like the people in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah laments that the people in his day had lost their ability to blush. And the things that once embarrass Americans no longer makes them blush. And listen, if we don't help our children to stay morally pure by understanding some of these truths that we'll be covering in these next five weeks, then they will just fall with the culture. They will go in the direction that the culture is going. So here in first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have the sad story of King David who commits adultery. You say, can a child of God commit adultery? Of course he can. Can a child of God commit adultery and not suffer? Absolutely not. Now, I love King David because in both the Old and the New Testament, he's called a man after God's own heart. And there's much that we can learn and much that we can admire from this great king. He was a brave young man who fought off the lion, who fought off the bear, who was willing to face Goliath, that huge human being. He was a great musician. He gave us many of the Psalms, some of which Matt leads us in worship on Sunday mornings. Some that you sing in your own quiet times or you read and pour over. He was a great king. He was a great administrator. He was a great leader. He was a great warrior. He was a man of integrity when he had the opportunity to put a knife through Saul's heart. He just cut off the edge of his robe to show that he would not harm God's anointed. He's one of the most talented and noble men found in Scripture. And yet David fell into this deep, dark, devious, evil sin that this chapter records. And so when God paints the portrait of a man in Scripture, he paints it warts and all. He doesn't paint just the highlights. He gives us a full picture of a person's life. 
And that portrait begins to unfold here in the first five verses of chapter 11. So that's where I want to begin reading. I hope you have a Bible. If you don't have one, come to the next Meet the Pastor, and we will get you on 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the daughter of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when, he had purif- and when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. David commits the sin of adultery, and then Bathsheba conceives. And then God gives the rest of the story as he unfolds the consequences of sin. You say, Pastor Carl, what does this message have to do with me? Everything. Because there are none listening that are greater than David. Not to mention the Bible warns in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. When you begin to think, oh, but I could never commit this sin that David committed, then you are tempting the devil to tempt you. And you have already taken the first step in a downward trend. I mean, none of us here are more gifted, more nobler, more humble, more sensitive than this man of God. And yet he entangles himself and the sin of adultery. So there are three timeless principles that I want us to learn about David's sin so that we can avoid it, that we might stay morally pure in these days in which we live. If you're using your note-taking outline, the very first point on the outline concerns the carelessness of David's sin, the carelessness of David's sin. Solomon warns, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. God says, from the heart flow the very issues, the springs of life. So watch over your heart. And unfortunately, David, the man of God, let his guard down. He became careless. And in the first few verses, we see two areas in which he was very careless. First, David's carelessness was rooted in his idleness. His carelessness was rooted in his idleness. Notice how verse 1 begins. Then it happened... In the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Amnon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So God is giving us the setting that led up to David's adultery. We're told specifically in the spring, that would mean in Israel after the latter rains, after the crops had been planted, when it was customary at that time in the Middle East, for a king to go out and resume the battle. In the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. And then there's a little three-letter word that I have circled, but. It's one letter in Hebrew. It's a little conjunction because God is drawing a contrast. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Instead of taking his responsibilities seriously as a king, he let Joab go out and do all the dirty work. He decided to stay home, and in the process, he was neglecting his God-given leadership. If he had been out carrying his duty as the head of the forces, 
He would not have found himself in the situation that we're reading about today. He should have been laying siege to this city called Ramon, and instead he's laying siege to Bathsheba, or Rava, or Rabbah. Look at verse 2. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. The King James renders it interesting. He came off his bed at evening tide. And I like that because evening tide is a beautiful old English word that describes that period of time from late afternoon into the early evening, right in that in-between time. So David's not out in the battle. He's getting up off the bed when he should have been about getting ready to go to bed. He'd been sleeping his way through the afternoon. We live here on the coast and we speak of a tide change. This is evening tide, late afternoon going into early evening and he should have spent his day differently. Audrey's grandmother, Maud, used to always say, an idle mind and idle hands are the devil's workshop. Now, you've heard that before, and that's so true. She was absolutely right. Idleness often opens the door to sin. And I believe there's a lesson here that we can learn from David, that idle time will typically end up giving birth to sinful time. When we're not in the path of the giving duties that God has ordained for us, then we are opening ourselves up to do things that we shouldn't be doing. We're opening ourselves up into the path of temptation. And if you read the Torah and you read about the kings of Israel, you discover that there are two principal responsibilities that the king was given oversight for. He was given oversight over the harvest field so that the people of the nation would be provided for, and he was given oversight over the battlefield. And David is involved in neither. And listen, there are two fields that the New Covenant Christian is given oversight over. You are to be involved in the harvest field, and you are to be involved in the battlefield. And there's a problem. King David is not doing what he ought to be doing, so he ends up doing that which he ought not to be doing. You ought to be involved in the harvest field. You ought to be seeking to win people to Christ. You say, that's what we pay you to do, preacher. No, you don't pay me to win souls for you. Now, we'll work alongside and we'll make a good team by God's grace, but I can't win the people that God has brought into your sphere of influence. You have to take the initiative in whatever means God gives you to expose them to the plan of salvation. And the uh, church is not described as some big love boat. It's a battleship. We're in a battle that we are called to wage war in. So here's David, because he's in a sin of omission, he ends up committing a sin of commission. It's what precisely we studied in the book of James, chapter 4. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And it is usually sins of omission that gets more Christians into sins of commission. Because you see, if you're doing that which you ought to be doing, then you cannot be doing that which you should not be doing. Take some mother. She has little children. She ought to be home raising those children. She's called to be a worker at home. Pastor, you're so old-fashioned. You're about the only preacher who I hear speaking like that. That's because most preachers are compromised in our day. Look, my hat is off to any woman who has to go out and work to help put food on the table. But you cannot read Scripture and come up with a different plan 
God's plan is that the mother is to be the key nurturer during the day. That doesn't mean she can't be creative and earn money from her home, but she is to have principal responsibility over those children. And a lot of pastors can't preach that because they've got their wives out working because they're greedy or they've opened up daycare centers to promote the very thing that God doesn't want them to promote. So what happens? Well, number one, a, a woman is a weaker vessel. So she will come home after a day's work, typically more tired than a man will. But because God has created into her spiritual DNA a nurturing dimension, job number two will kick in. And she'll do everything that she can to make that home what it needs to be and to provide for those children. And after a while, she gets more and more tired. And after a while, they begin to snap at each other. And they're not getting along, and these walls begin to build up. And she goes to work, and there's a fellow there who's kind and considerate. He never sees her without makeup on and in rollers. And she, he always sees her at her best, at her freshest hours, typically. And she begins to listen to that fellow. Before long, they're infatuated with one another, and adultery kicks in. You see, if she was doing that which she ought to be doing, she would not be doing that which she ought not to be doing. David should have been with his soldiers in the battle leading the way, but not, he's not. In the middle of the day, he's got all this idle time on his hand. Look, there's a legitimate purpose for rest. We all need it. Jesus said, let us go away to a quiet place. And you're foolish if you work 24-7. God gave us an example. In six days, he did his work, and in one, he rested. But let me tell you why Take teenagers in this generation. Why are so many teenagers caught up in the mess they are caught up in? Why are 80% of the so-called evangelical teenagers, when they get to college, they are rejecting the faith and they want nothing to do with Holy Scripture? Well, I'll tell you, it's during the formational years that many of them have all this idle time on their hand and their heart is not being guarded. And so, you know, they're hanging around, they're surfing the web, they're on their cell phone talking to friends, they're spending all this time on social media where nothing wrong with those things technically, but some of them don't know how to work yet. There's so many children, teenagers in America who don't know how to work. Listen, you teach your children how to work not when they're 15, but when they're five. You teach them how to earn a dollar, save a dollar, tie the dollar. That needs to begin very, very young. Look, by the time I was 12, I had a full-blown lawn mowing business. There was a mower out in the back shed, and I said, Dad, this mower has been broken. If I fix it, will you let me use it for a lawn mowing service? And he said, yes. And so I got my friend, Stephen St. Martin, and together we fixed that lawnmower. And I went to Mrs. Cutting's house, and Mrs. Cutting, she was 80 years old. I said, Mrs. Cutting, I will cut your grass for free. And if you like the work I do, maybe we could negotiate a price. And I cut the grass, and I did, by God's grace, a great job. And she said, I'll pay you $5 a week. Before long, I had a full-blown lawn cutting business. And in the winter, those became my snow customers where I shoveled their walks. Hey, listen, some of these teenagers say, I can't find a job. Hey, we, we got a problem in America. We can't fill basic positions. The Atlanta airport yesterday put a crowd for 3,000 workers. 
They can't get people to take suitcases off of the, off of the belts to put them on the, you know, the, the thing that comes out and pops up so you can get, I mean, everything's a mess. People, why work? Why work when you can get a double bonus from the government? <laughs> Collect unemployment twice over. Why work when you don't have to pay your rent? Hey, look, my hat is off to people who are struggling. But I see all these landlords who, they can't make their payments. Why? Because the government says you don't have to pay your rent. Not yet, anyway. We have a culture that fosters laziness and idleness. And so as soon as we get to college and we get out into the business world, what's one of the goals that are set for us? Retirement. Hey, look, there's nothing wrong with retiring. And you may come to a point where you physically are not able or you're company wants you to retire, but you don't retire from life. I thank God for many of the older adults in our church who have not retired from life. It's just a redefinition of what God wants you to do. It's a change of job descriptions. So here's David's carelessness. It's rooted in idleness. Secondly, David's carelessness was rooted in impulsiveness, in impulsiveness. Look now, if you will, as we continue to read in verse 2. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, God unfolds a historical record from David's perspective, because 2 Samuel is the biography of David. He could have certainly have unfolded it from Bathsheba's perspective. She knew, obviously, the proximity of David's courtyard, uh, of her courtyard to David's uh, castle, his, uh, his home. We've stood on the very place where David's home was, and you look down a hill, he's up on a high spot, and even to this day, there's houses built below, and you could see what he would have seen, how he had a full-blown view of the homes below, and of course, kings in that day, and people in that day. During this time of year, they would go out onto their roofs in the evening, because that's when these famous breezes that Jerusalem is known for would be blowing. And she knew that David would be out there and that she would be in full view of the bathwater. He would be in full view of the bathwater. She probably has some sensual desires that are going on here. But again, the focus is not on her, but on King David. And King David makes some choices. First and foremost, he decides to stare. He doesn't take Job's advice where he bounces the eyes. He lets his eyes linger. The Hebrew verb where it says here, he saw, he saw a woman bathing. It's in a particular stem that meant he kept seeing, he focused. So when he stumbles across this incident, he should have walked back into the palace, but instead he stays out on the roof and he keeps looking. And before long, what he saw, he sought after this strong warrior king had taken off his spiritual armor. In the New Testament, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Likewise, Paul tells to Timothy, his son in the faith and his last will and testament, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So let's ask a question. Why would David take off his spiritual armor? Why did he let his guard down? It's obvious as you read the chapters before this, because he had had so many victories. 
And so he had thought, you know, we're, we're on the winning side. Things are great. I don't even need to go out in the battle. I'll let General Joab handle this. And many times when you've had victory after victory after victory in your Christian life, you can begin to think that you're invincible. You may think that you're so strong that you would not fall. And we have a great track record of people in the Scripture who had had consistent victory, and then a fall came. Why? Because they let their guard down. And so David, he doesn't fall at the point of his weakness. King David falls at the point of his strength. He's known as a man of integrity. And so he writes this in Psalm 26. Listen to these words. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Taking another man's wife was the last thing that would have crossed his mind. You've heard me say it. I've said it for three decades that an unguarded strength is potentially a double weakness. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. God may give you some strength in your heart, and when you leave it unguarded, you become a target for the evil one. Think about it. Take Peter, for instance. What was his great strength? He was brave. And there in the upper room on the night when Christ is going to be betrayed, he said, Lord, I don't know about the rest of these guys, but I'm willing to go to prison for you. I'm even willing to die for you. And he took out a sword he had acquired that day. And when they go to arrest the Lord after Jesus, of course, put over a thousand men on their backs, he cut off a man's ear there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he ultimately falls at the point of his strength. And so when that little servant girl a short time later says, you're one of his, no, no, and three times calling down curses, he denies the Lord. Even so, here's King David. He got careless. He first was idle, and then he was impulsive. And what you find here in the first two verses are all the ingredients for sin. When you have an unexpected opportunity mixing with an unguarded strength, you have everything needed for sin. I mean, she's very beautiful, the text says. It's only said of three women in all of Scripture. She was very beautiful. She's bathing. And here's David. He is unguarded in his heart because he had gotten idle, and that led him to be impulsive. And so he begins to stare, and he falls into temptation. Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Keep us from temptation. That's not just some chin music. That's something that we need to be sensitive to and pray about. And so I wonder, some of us this morning, if we've let our guard down. Some of us sitting there this morning, we, we have let our guard down. Some of you are listening, you've let your guard down. You're not what you used to be. You've kind of let your heart get cold. You used to come to church and you had a passion to be here. You used to sing hymns to God throughout the day. You used to read your scripture and memorize the Bible. And you just walked with God and you looked for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. But that's past. And your heart's grown cold. And here's David. He never, ever, ever, ever would have dreamed that he would do what is recorded of him in this chapter. But he got careless, and he began to coast. 
Now, in addition to the carelessness of David's sin, I want us to think for just a moment about the callousness of David's sin, the callousness of King David's sin. Look, if you will, now at verse 3. So David sent, sent some servants. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is, not, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You can see the progression of sin as it unfolds. First he stares at her, then he desires her, then he inquires about her. Perhaps at first he was trying to figure out whether or not she was married or not. Maybe he thought he'd marry her. But of course the answer comes. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Yes, it is. Now, we studied in our exposition of the epistle of James, LSD, remember it? Lust, sin, death. James describes how it unfolds. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, a a broken fellowship with God. But David could stop at nothing. He had plenty of time to stop. Unlike Joseph, when he is given an opportunity to be immoral, he runs. But David lingers. He looks. By the way, God never tells us to fight this sin. He tells us to flee this sin, flee sexual immorality. Verse 4 says, David sent messengers and took her. When she came to him, he lay with her. David's evil desire is now in full trot. Maybe he rationalized to himself, all right, she's married, but we'll just talk. What's wrong with talking? Or maybe he thought, Uriah, like the rest of the men, they're going to be out there in the field for a few months. No one else will know the difference. But you see, the Scripture says here in James, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And so David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And of course, she never resists. Now, if David were a pagan king, she might have thought in her own mind, well, I don't really have any choice unless I want to be killed, because pagan kings, if a woman did not comply, would often execute the woman. But this is not some pagan king. This is a man of God. She could have resisted. She could have said, King David, I'm married. I've made a promise, a covenant vow to God Almighty and to my precious husband Uriah. I will not do this. I tell you, it would have stopped right there. But she simply consents because she's probably eager to have a relationship with this handsome, powerful, rich man. And she is, of course, a beautiful woman. And I'm sure Bathsheba probably thought she never, ever, ever would have done what she did with King David. But when it's all over, Samuel records here in verse 4, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Now, isn't that interesting? Bathsheba is following the laws of ritual purity. You can read about it in Leviticus 15, which is done a certain number of days after a woman's menstrual cycle. And God obviously dropped this in here for two reasons. First, to underscore and to confirm that the paternity of the child is beyond dispute. This is David's baby. But it's also a reminder of religious ritual to sin. She's not performing this religious ritual out of a pure heart. 
but out of an evil heart after an evil act. And we shouldn't be totally surprised because very often religious activity is mixed as a cover-up with sin. Many a person will commit adultery on Saturday night and they'll come to church on Sunday morning. They'll sing the hymn, they'll, they'll give their tithes, somehow thinking everything's okay. But God made it clear to King Saul that to obey is better than sacrifice. Now the news of their sin is recorded here in verse 5. Notice, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. What is she doing? Among other things, she's appealing to David to take the necessary steps that he might be able to take as king to preserve her life and his life from death. Why? Because of what God wrote in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. Listen to what Moses recorded. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, this was the ultimate price for the sin of adultery, though from a practical matter, the death penalty was very rarely exercised for adultery because the law required to initiate the death penalty, there had to be two or three witnesses. And so this was usually a very private sin that was not done in the open. Not to mention, Moses makes it very clear that the one who makes the accusation has to be the very first one to cast the stone so that the rest of the nation will follow. So what does David do? He contrives a plan in his heart to cover over this sin. And it really is an expression of just how callous his heart had become. And I want you to see his callousness on at least three levels. First, David's callousness is seen and that he tries to blame Uriah. You know, I have some calluses all across both hands, and if I take a pin and prick those calluses, I don't feel anything. But if I take a pin and prick the middle of my palm, I'll feel it. Some people develop calluses on the human heart, and they become insensitive. And we see that with David. His callousness is seen first, and that he tries to blame Uriah. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. Then David said to Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of war. So he sends a messenger to the general who's out in the field. He's supposed to send Uriah to King David. And David's attempt is here to legitimize his sin by blaming Uriah. He uh, invites him to come to give him a report about the people in the state of the war. But that's not going on in his mind. That's the last thought on his mind. He pretends to listen like he's earnestly concerned about his men, but he wants Uriah to go home and to enjoy the intimacies of marriage so that he can cover up the pregnancy and say, this is your baby. Now, people who normally would never do these kinds of things. When they get into adultery, they often will become liars and deceivers, and they will cover things up. Look at verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went up out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. I don't know what the present was. Maybe it was a bottle of port wine. Whatever it was, 
like this is supposed to make everything okay, we read, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and, his, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. He's saying, I'm just trying to honor my king and my God. I could not do this thing, O king, not by your life or by your soul. Then, verse 12, David said to Uriah, stay here today also. Tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah returned and remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, you really have to admire Uriah because his willingness is to want to be in identification with his comrades in arms. He can't literally be out in the field suffering with them, so to speak, laying on the ground and doing what so many of our Marines do when they go into battle and, you know, eating meals out of a can and all the sacrifices they make to protect our freedom. He's not able to uh, be out there with him, but he thinks, well, you know, neither am I going to enjoy the comforts at home. Why should I enjoy the comforts of food and uh, drink and the intimacies of a lawful legal relationship with my wife when my soldiers cannot do that? And you would have thought that Uriah's deep concern for the troops would have somehow pinched David's conscience, but it does not. I mean, here's Uriah who could have enjoyed lawful pleasures, and it should have convicted King David of his unlawful pleasure that he had had with Bathsheba, this man's wife. But he's calloused, so he goes to plan B. Look now at verse 13. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So David goes a little bit deeper into sin. This time he gets Uriah drunk so that he'll hopefully forget his sacrificial, draw, uh, sacrificial vow and he'll have intimacy with his wife. Do you remember what Habakkuk the prophet said? Woe to you who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Look, many an evil man, many an evil woman have known that if you can get someone buzzed on alcohol, that they will give up the otherwise virtuous expressions of morality that they would typically exercise. And King David's thinking along that way. I'll just get him buzzed. Certainly he'll go down and lie with his wife. So he puts him under the influence and David's blame for that sin, and I could go on to a lecture about alcohol and how that could have happened where God could blame David and not just Uriah, but I, I don't have time for that this morning. You can listen to passages I have on alcohol. But here's this man. He refuses. He, he's not under the influence of David. He's going to do what's right. But David is calloused. He's now insensitive to the Lord. So he wants to blame Uriah. Secondly, David's callousness is seen 
and that he has Uriah murdered. Not only does he want to blame him when that doesn't work, now he wants to have Uriah murdered. This is King David. Look at verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. I mean, what a paradox. He sends the plan by the hand of the man whom he is going to murder. I mean, what could be baser? What could be more barbaric? And here's a guy that he trusts so much. This man has so much integrity. He is convinced that Uriah is not even going to open the order and take a peek at it. This is a man with tremendous integrity. By the way, he is one of David's mighty men. You read of David's 30 and in one passage 37, he had 30 men, but he had a total over the years of 37 different men who served in that precious group of men to defend Israel's honor. Here is this man, one of his precious 30, who has so much integrity, he won't even open up the order, but he is going to murder him. And by the way, the jails are filled with people who have covered over their adultery, either by killing the person they committed adultery with or killing the person who would be violated by their adultery so the relationship can continue. It's happened with prince. It's happened with paupers. People who just disappear all of a sudden. And this is a, a sin that potentially is going to bring great shame on the king and on the name of God. And if there's two or three witnesses, he should be executed. But let's keep reading. Who would have thought that David would have come up with this plan for murder? Look at verse 16. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah, the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Now, please note, to pull off this plan, making sure that Uriah is killed, Many of David's other men also died that day. So David's not really guilty of just murder. He's guilty of multiple murder because of this evil plan that he contrived. This man, after God's own heart, goes after God's own people. Verse 18, then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, when you have finished telling all the events of war to the king... And if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So David would have been expected to ask such questions. Of course, Joab is referring to a well-known battle. You can read about it in Judges chapter 9. And the Israeli forces at that time, like today, it's interesting, you go to Israel and certainly many of the people in the Israeli defense force are not observant and practicing, but you'll see some of them with open Bibles, with the Hebrew Scriptures sitting on the ground. And in this day, they studied prior war. And this was a famous war that you can study. And it would have been expected that they would have learned from this event. 
But after the messenger asked such questions, we're told, then you shall say, Uriah, your servant, the Hittite, is dead also. This is just a game. This is just cover up. If the king's wrath of his anger, as some translations render it, begins to show, David's just play acting. So the messenger, verse 22, departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. I mean, this is a wicked, diabolical plan that's hatched in hell. Maybe David rationalized in his mind. Well, I'm not actually the one drawing the sword, so I'm not technically murdering him. And men die in battle, and after all, if some of the men pull back, he still has his own sword and a fighting chance, and well, if he dies, he, he dies at his own hand. And you can rationalize anything in your mind long enough where you can make a wrong or right. But how could David do something like this? Here's Uriah, one of his mighty men, a loyal soldier. This innocent, valiant, gallant man of God was ready to die for the king's honor, but instead he dies at the king's hand. Now, please understand that when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, that's a hot-blooded sin. He looks, he lusts, he commits adultery. But Uriah's murder is a cold-blooded sin. It's planned, it's calculated, and then it's carried out. It's one of the dirtiest deeds recorded in Scripture. Is this the same king who wrote all those magnificent psalms? Is this the same king who cut off the edge of Saul's robe when he could have taken him out? Is this the same king who's known as executing justice for all? Is this the same king who keeps his promise to his dear friend Jonathan by letting Mephibosheth dine at his table? The writer of the Hebrews says, Take care, lest any of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. King David had become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Proverbs 6.32 was really being fleshed out in his life. It says, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does this. His heart is hard. His heart is calloused. And your heart, my heart, can become just as hard and just as calloused if we let our guard down. King David never, ever, ever, ever would have imagined he would have done these kinds of things. But his carelessness leads to callousness. It's a slow progression. Look at verse 25. It's almost an unbelievable statement. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. Literally, the Hebrew reads, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. So David is obviously glad to hear the report his scheme has worked. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't feel bad about it, Joab. Now, on two other occasions, as recorded by the prophet Samuel, when David compromises his integrity, Joab calls him on the mat, and David repents. But not on this occasion. 
Joab is silent. He says nothing. And he just blindly carries out the king's evil scheme. You know how it is, general. The sword devours one as it does another. That's just the hazards of being in a battle. And David's response reminds me of the adulterous woman who in Proverbs 30 and verse 20 says, I have done nothing wrong. Now let's read verses 26 and 27. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. So nine months passed. But notice the bottom line. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David has this casual view of sin. And to underscore how God feels about it all the way through this narrative, there's silence. And then God drops in the bomb. The thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's just a reminder, you may think, well, God's not really watching. God is absent. God sees it all. And we look at our culture, and we look at the LGBTQ plus wickedness of our day. We see the widespread adultery and fornication, and we see that some of the stupidest policies in the history of the nation defying and denying the very things that makes a country a country. According to the book of Acts, that a country has borders, and we're ignoring these borders, and everything else we're doing. And we think, what is happening? God is watching. He knows what he is about. He's not blind what is happening to America. Now remember, this is one of God's children. He's describing King David who, dis who pleased himself, but in the process he displeased God. So I suppose further we need to underscore another aspect of his callousness there in your outline. David's callousness is seen in that he waits to confess. He waits to confess. He's initially unwilling because he's so callous to confess his sin. God had spoken to David. He was under conviction. How do we know? Because of Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Describes what David's life was like when he was out of fellowship with the living God. His fellowship is broken. He's miserable on the inside. He's like a winter tree that looks dead. There's no fruit on it. During this time, he's not penning any psalms. He's not playing the harp and singing to the Lord. His heart's indifferent. And that's why in Psalm 51, in his prayer of confession over the sin of adultery, he makes this statement. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And then he prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And some of you are here today, maybe some of you are listening somewhere in the world on one of our campuses, and your heart is callous and it's indifferent, and the joy of the Lord that you once knew is just not there right now because there's unconfessed sin. And you think, well, I'll just wait. Somehow, you know, the statute of limitations will run out and everything will be okay with me and God. God did not forget and the reason David was so miserable is because God was disciplining David. 
In Proverbs says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And the writer of the Hebrews quotes that to remind us that if you know the living God, you will come under his divine discipline. You say people commit adultery every day and they don't see God's discipline. That's because they don't know the Lord. He disciplines those whom he loves, those whom he has a unique, regenerate, born-again relationship with at this time in human history. Now, God's not this passive onlooker. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1 and notice how things turn. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. So in grace, God doesn't abandon David. God goes to David through Nathan the prophet. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. So we're introduced to these two men, and again, God takes the initiative. David doesn't say, hey, Nathan, come here. I need to talk to you about my spiritual life. No. God takes the initiative with this man. The rich man had many flocks and herds, verse 3, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David explodes. He's so angry when he hears this. Then David's anger, verse 5, burned greatly against the man. And he said to David, as the Lord lives, literally by the life of Yahweh, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So Nathan comes into the palace. He says, King David, there's a matter in your kingdom that I need you to adjudicate on. I want to tell you about a terrible thing that has happened in the land. And so he makes up this parable of sorts, and he tells him of this rich man who lived next to this poor man. And this rich man had everything he could wish for, a great many flocks and herds. But this poor man who lived next door had one little ewe lamb, a little female lamb, that he just raised from birth and fed the little thing. And, and then the rich man has a guest. And as in any Mideastern culture, you showed hospitality when folks showed up at your door. But would he take from his flock? No, he takes from this poor man's hand this one little ewe lamb. And David, the shepherd boy, is just in anger. He knew it was like to have a little pet lamb. He's enraged. And he says the man must pay fourfold. Look at verse 7. Nathan then said to the man, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. He inherited Saul's houses, all his goods. He inherited Saul's wives, not that God is endorsing polygamy. He inherited them to care for his wives and the children. Everything that God records, he does not condone. Nowhere in Scripture does God condone polygamy. 
God never sanctions it, but he allows it under the old covenant because of the hardness of man's heart. Just like Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 19, Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your heart. David wouldn't even be considered a believer under new covenant standards. But you see, on this side of the cross, the Spirit of God has a different relationship, not only with an unbelieving world in whom He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and illuminates the law of God written in the heart, but He also has a unique relationship with the church, the body of Christ. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Now, that's important. It wasn't literally David's sword. It was his pen that wrote the order. But God incriminates David because when he writes the order, it's like he put the sword through the man's heart. Yet you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. The whole story, it's this parable. It's an analogy painting David's own sin. God had given David a kingdom. God had given David power. God had given him wealth. He had given him Israel as all of his servants. And while it was, again, God's not original intention for him to have so many wives, he had many wives, and Uriah had only one. And like the rich man who stole the one man's lamb, here King David steals the one man's wife. And like the rich man who kills an animal, David kills the man. And David sentences himself by the confession that he makes. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Notice, no excuses, no searching for a loophole. He doesn't plead, well, you know, we're all just weak. There's a broken-hearted confession here, so different from King Saul. Here again is a man after God's heart. Is he sinlessly perfect? No, he had many failures, but the direction of his life was different from Saul's. And ultimately, he is submissive to God's truth. And Nathan, Nathan, so Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. He's going to be spared from being stoned to death. Now, God's forgiveness was immediate. There's no probation period. God gives him everything when he deserves nothing. We call it grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. But it's not over. That brings me to the third and final point. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Beyond the carelessness of David's sin and the callousness of David's sin, we must not overlook the consequences of David's sin. Now, the consequences of his sin are not a pretty story. For Nathan has just said in verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house. And then in verses 11 and 12, he underscores that there'll be continued adversity. And you can read all about it in chapter 16. That's a sermon in itself. But let me focus on the immediate consequences here in chapter 12. First, David loses the infant baby. He loses the infant baby. David had fallen under God's displeasure, and because he was a believer, it brought God's discipline. God sees and hates sin, especially when it's in the hearts of his own people. And by the way, you are never nearer to God's displeasure 
than you are in your profession with him. In other words, the closer you are to God, the more displeasing it is to him. Because where grace abounds, we should be all the more walking with the Lord because the grace of God that brings salvation, it instructs us to deny worldliness and ungodliness and to live holy and righteously in this present age. I mean, David had been shown so much grace, his heart should have been overflowing with gratitude. But there's ingratitude by the steps that he takes. Look at verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That's what happens when we live wickedly before an unbelieving world. They say, ah, look at you Christians. Paul quotes the same text. Bunch of hypocrites. You give an unbelieving world the opportunity to blaspheme. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Look, when there's a scandal in the church, we've seen it in recent months with Hillsong. Australia is covered over with mockery. And some of the key pastors here in the United States with Hillsong all caught up in this adulterous scandal. And they're laughing, they're mocking, they're making fun. But God is gracious. He hates sin, but he still loves his sinner. He still loves David, but there are consequences that cannot be erased. And so this little baby that is born died. You say, why did God do that to the baby? God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. There's no telling what God spared this little child from. That child's in heaven. You'll meet that baby someday. We don't know his name. You'll meet that child someday. The Scripture's clear. He went to heaven. But he's a little innocent, this son of David. And, of course, he becomes a picture. He becomes a type, as David's life habitually does in a number of instances. Becomes a picture of the son of David who dies as our substitute. And if you remember, the baby comes very sick, he dies, but God's not finished. Remember, God said through David out of his own lips, the person who's done this wicked thing must make fourfold restitution. And so the baby dies, but it's not done. Of course, he has other children, and he has a daughter by the name of Tamar. And and then he has another son by the name of Ammon. They have the same uh, father, but they have different mothers. Nonetheless, Ammon is sexually attracted to Tamar. And so he comes up with this evil scheme so he can have a relationship with her. So he fakes sickness. She comes in. She cares for him. She feeds him. And then he overpowers her and he violates her. And David loses the purity of his daughter, Tamar. And so the second crop is in the barn. Now, remember, David said to the prophet, the man who did this thing ought to repay fourfold. David has another son. His name is Absalom. Absalom was handsome. He was witty. He was charming. But he hated his half-brother Amnon for what he had done to his full sister Tamar. And so Absalom contrives a plot where he has Amnon murdered. And so he hires his servants to get him drunk and then to take him down. And so David loses the life of his son, Amnon. And so the third crop is in the barn. 
But God's not done yet with David. He had not yet reaped the full consequences of his sin. And so Absalom goes on in his rebellion and his wickedness against his own father, David. He sits at the city of gates. Why? To win the hearts of the people. Say, you need to follow me as king. And he tells the people what a crummy king David is and what a great king he'll be. And after a while, he wins the hearts of the people, and David has to flee one more time. And he flees for his life, and then it comes down to a battle where the forces of King David face the forces of Absalom. But before they go into battle, he calls General Joab in and says, look, I know my son Absalom has done so much wrong, but please, whatever you do, don't hurt him. And of course, the historical record is given to us in Scripture. In the middle of the battle, this man with his long flowing hair gets caught in a tree, and he's hanging with his hair by the tree, and Joab comes and with three spears takes him out. And when the news concerning the battle comes to King David, he is not interested whether or not the kingdom is safe. The only thing he's interested in is, is concerns his son Absalom. And the servant comes and says, he's dead. And in his grief, he says, it's in the vocative in English because there's deep emotion here. And some of the newer translations leave out that letter O. But there's deep emotion in the Hebrew text that we communicate with the vocative as the NASB brings out. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And the fourth crop is in the barn. David loses the life of his son, Absalom. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me make several applications. Number one, I learned from this section of Scripture that moral purity is often lost through choices we make with our eyes. Moral purity is often lost through choices we make with our eyes. David was known for his integrity, but he let his guard down with his eyes after he began to look after another man's wife. He didn't get up from the nap expecting to go after Bathsheba. She was just there on his rooftop. But he chose to stare, and it turned into lust, and it turned into adultery. And he had forgot what Job had written. Job lived during the time of the patriarchs, during Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Job 31.1, he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look and gaze at a virgin? Job dealt with this temptation very aggressively. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. And as a Christian man, you can't say, well, I just can't help from looking. No, the Bible teaches you can. And so here's Job who doesn't live just clean outwardly. He lives clean inwardly. He'll say a few verses later, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? Yes, he does. So he dealt with this kind of temptation very differently than King David. David entertained his eyes. Job bounced the eyes. Remember what Jesus said in Luke's gospel? The lamp of your body is your eye. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body also is full of darkness. The eye is the window gate. You let in evil or you let in good. So God is saying, we're not some helpless victim. There are choices that we can make. Sometimes there are just things before you. You don't 
planned for them to be. You're driving down the street and there's this compromised billboard or whatever it is. You have a choice. Are you going to bounce the eyes or are you going to stare? It's all part of fleeing youthful loss. Again, God doesn't say to fight this sin. He says to flee it. And that's what Job was doing with his eyes. But unlike Job who bounced the eyes, David lingers the eyes and he stares at Bathsheba. And darkness comes into his soul. So first I learned that moral purity often comes through choices we make with our eyes. Secondly, I learned God can forgive sin, but he does not, cease the, does not erase the laws of sowing and reaping. God can forgive sin, but... He does not erase the laws of sowing and reaping. Oh, David had a good time with Bathsheba. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but the crop came in. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians? King David's an illustration of this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. David planted a crop, and he reaped a harvest. Because there's nothing that happens in this universe by chance. Just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, so there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. Whatever you sow, you will reap. You will reap like you sow. You don't plant an apple seed and reap a pear tree. No, there's a locked-in likeness. You sow sensuality, you will reap sensuality. You cannot plant discord in your home and reap unity. You cannot sow hypocrisy and produce holiness. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. You can't sow to the flesh and reap from the Spirit. Job says in Job 4 and verse 8, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. David sowed seeds of immorality. But there was not an immediate result. There was an incubation period. You put a little tomato seed in the ground and you don't come out two hours late. Where's the sprout, man? I'm looking for it. Takes some time for the plant to come up. There's an incubation period and we think, well, you know, I'm sinning with impunity and nothing's happening. Just wait. David didn't see immediate judgment. And sometimes we don't see immediate consequences and we think everything's fine. Then a year later, a baby comes. And God said in chapter 12 and verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house. And he lived with the consequence for the rest of his life. You put one little seed in the ground, you will not only see reap like you sow, you will not only see later than you sow, you will reap more than you sow. One little tomato seed will produce a stock, maybe 10 tomatoes on it. Hosea said, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. And that is paraphrase, they, they send in a breeze, but they have retribution like a hurricane. You do a little evil, but that evil is intensified. You reap more than you sow. You'll get more than you sow. You'll reap the same thing. You'll reap later than you sow, and you'll reap more than you sow. And we learn the laws of sowing and reaping is illustrated through the life of King David. So we have all these Americans 
They're afraid. Pastors are afraid to stand up for what's right. So we had the son of a former Southern Baptist convention president, a good man, a good godly man. I've heard him preach. Sadly, his son was abused sexually by another man when he was young. But listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God could have helped that young man through that tragedy. And many of us suspected we were, he was gay, but he always said he wasn't. Then he comes out on his 39th birthday this past week, and he says, I'm homosexual, God has made me this way, and I am proud of it. I almost never respond on Twitter. But how could I not? All these preachers, we're happy for you. Andy Stanley says, we're happy for you. We're proud of you. And I wrote to that young man, I said, God loves you, God can forgive you, but God also needs to change you. And I put 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and then comes the responses. Boom, 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 boom. Remember what God said to Israel in Psalm 99, oh Lord our God, you answered them, you were forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. God forgave them, but God took Israel to the woodshed. Because again, as Proverbs says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God forgave Moses, but Moses never went into the promised land. He dies up there on top of Mount Nebo. And you can commit adultery and think everything's fine. But there's a scar that you will bring to your life and to your home. Now listen, if you are living in sin this morning, some kind of sexual sin, and God is not dealing with you, then you need to be saved. And if you are living in sin this morning and God is dealing with you, you need to get right. Because God's long-suffering won't last forever. And if you have truly been saved then you ought to do everything to seek the grace of God to forgive you, to cleanse you, and allow you to live a holy and righteous life. You say, Pastor, give it to them. What a great sermon. Give it to them, Pastor. Glad. I hope they heard this morning. No, I hope you heard this morning. I hope I heard this morning. Because understand where David's heart began. He didn't just one day walk into an adulterous relationship. When someone says, well, my husband committed adultery, I'm thinking as a pastor, what happened way back here? Let his heart get cold and sensitive. Stop spending time with God. Began to watch movies and listen to certain kinds of music that he thought he would never entertain himself on, and it gets more and more and more progressive. And before you know it, he's committed adultery. People think, I will never, ever, ever do that. Then walk closely with the Lord, because let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Some of you, there used to be a time when you walked closely with the Lord. There used to be a song in your heart. You used to look forward to meeting with God in the morning. And you can't remember the last time your heart was like that. And you are ripe 
for the evil of this day. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed this morning. You say, Pastor, I haven't committed adultery. I certainly have never murdered anyone. But I will admit I don't love Jesus the way I used to. Well, bring it to the Lord Jesus. Ask Him to cleanse you, to wash you. And if you've been lazy in the work of the Lord and your fellowship with God has been less than consistent, just remember an unguarded strength is a double weakness. Don't let that pride overrun your heart today. King David never thought he would have committed adultery and murder, but he let his heart get cold. Maybe you're here and you've never been saved. You say, I don't know if I would go to heaven. That just means you're not saved. For the promise of God, because of what Jesus did, he died for every sin that man has ever committed. He bore them in his own body on the cross so God can say, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And if you will take God at his word, believe what he said, the Bible calls that faith. You are acknowledging that God can't lie. You're acknowledging that he will keep his promise, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you will say, Lord Jesus, save me, then he will. Our Holy Father, you told us that we are to be holy because you are holy. And we are living in an age that is covered over with evil and sensuality and not just in these United States, but wherever we travel in the world. But you told us these days would come, that the coming of the Son of Man would be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of impropriety and lawlessness and violence and immorality, and yes, sexual perversion as in Lot's day. But thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that your grace is sufficient. So help us as a church to shine bright in the midst of darkness. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation this morning. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're in Grays. Maybe you're in Graniteville. But there's a decision that you need to make of a public expression, like confessing Jesus as Lord, like obeying the Lord and being baptized after you're saved or possibly joining this church. I want to invite you during this time to leave your seat and meet me here in the front. Would you come?